0: Well, at this time, if our little ones have not been released to head to their time and space, uh, please do so now if any little disciples can go have your time together. Uh, although you could hang with us tonight, it might be actually quite appropriate for you guys to for the little ones to stay with us this evening given the passage that we're stepping into. Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and to open them up to that passage, Mark chapter ten. My name is Andrew and I serve as a pastor here, and I have the pleasure and the joy of leading us through the passage of scripture that is before us this evening. And it's a passage that deals with the interplay between kids and the kingdom of God, how, how Jesus welcomes kids into his kingdom and how he encourages his disciples to assume the, the posture and the status of kids so that we might uh, experience the grace of God and magnify the grace of God in our lives and in our discipleship as we relate to this Jesus. It's a remarkable passage. It's a beautiful passage. It's one of the most beloved stories that you'll read about in the Bible. It's just a beautiful scene. It's the stuff that uh, Kodak Moments are made of, if I can reference something a little dated. Kodak Moments, a popular inspiration for paintings and pictures, just seeing Jesus hanging with kids, seeing Jesus welcoming children and blessing them, seeing him respond to kids in a way that was, in many ways, quite countercultural. As Jesus is relating to the kids in his vicinity in ways that went against the grain and what was common in his cultural environment, which is why his disciples act so dumb in this passage. The disciples acting so dumb, while Jesus is acting so delightful. You have Jesus welcoming the kids, you have the disciples trying to hinder the kids from coming to Jesus. And the reason they do that in this moment is has to do with them being more conditioned by their culture than by their Christ. You see, this scene takes place in the midst of a culture that did not view kids very highly. They did not see kids with the sentimental eyes that you and I tend to look upon kids today. Uh, There was no Disney. There was no Pixar. Kids were not cherished. Kids were not warmly uh, viewed and embraced and welcomed in society. First off, you have how the Roman Empire viewed kids. The Roman Empire had a view of kids that viewed them uh, in many ways as uh, disruptions, that kids were disruptions, kids were inconveniences, kids were um, just kind of nuisances in society in many ways. This is why kids were so easily discarded in the general culture of the Roman Empire. Abortion was quite common, some primitive forms of abortion, but it was practiced regularly abandonment was a regular part of the, the culture in that society. If, if a child, for instance, was born disabled, or if a child was handicapped or even became handicapped in childhood, it was not uncommon for those kids to be discarded. There are accounts coming out of the first century in the Roman Empire world where trash heaps that were uh, littered and that were stationed in various neighborhoods, and it wasn't uncommon to find Discarded with the garbage of, discarded with people's garbage would be people's kids that nobody wanted. They were abandoned to these trash heaps. And usually when that happened, that abandonment gave way to abuse. As many discarded kids who were viewed as disruptions, kids that nobody wanted, kids that were viewed as inconveniences. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for those kids to be sold into slavery, for those kids to be uh, raised as, to become gladiators, for those kids to become prostitutes. It was a rough culture for kids in the Roman Empire. Now, you may hear that and say, well, that's, you know, 2,000 plus years ago. We live in 21st century, where the western hemisphere of all places, uh, we live in our culture. Surely we've, enlightened, we've become enlightened beyond that type of treatment of little ones. Surely we're the type of culture that would embrace the helpless and the vulnerable. Surely we are the, type of, we are the type of culture that would view kids with a little more warmth and a little more affection. But I would push back on that. Despite the pretty facade that we put up in our culture, As it relates to how kids are viewed in society, I think there's still a tendency within us to view kids as disruptions. How else do you explain that a conservative estimate this year, this is a conservative estimate, but a million and a half humans will be aborted before they ever make it out of their mother's wombs. A million and a half babies will be discarded when they are in their most vulnerable state, when they are in their most defenseless state, when they are in their most helpless state. It happens in our culture. Abandonment is widespread in our society. Estimated 40% of the kids in our country will go to bed tonight and their dads won't be present. And then if you move, the deeper you move into some of the more impoverished places in our society and our culture, that percentage increases quite dramatically. And it's not only in that world. There's a situation, I think, in our parenting today where it's possible for a mom or a dad to even be present in the home, yet be emotionally detached and emotionally distant so that the kid senses a type of abandonment in their soul. Our, Our culture isn't as enlightened as we might think we are. We, we might not need to be patting ourselves on the back about how evolved we are morally and how virtuous we are as a society if we just would peel back the facade that is present and the facade that we project and get after things that are commonly occurring in our culture today. We're going to discover that there is a view on kids today that says they're disruptions. And if they are disrupting, they should be discarded if they are an inconvenience, then they should be turned away. So our society isn't much different from the society in which Jesus is welcoming these kids into his presence and blessing them in this moment. But not only in the, when you consider just kind of the Roman empire and some of the Roman, the aspects of Roman culture, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi and he's, Uh, more conditioned by the Jewish culture as well as his disciples were. But even in the Jewish culture, there was a tendency to view kids as socially insignificant, that they occupied the low rung of the social ladder. So that, yes, there's a sense in which, say, Psalm 127, where families viewed kids as a blessing from the Lord. But even within that, there was a tendency for families to only view male children as blessings from the Lord as female children were not viewed as with as much value as, say, a male heir or the male um, child who would carry the family's lineage into the future. So yes, although on one hand we could say the Jews viewed children as a blessing from the Lord, but even within their households there was a hierarchy. Within their households there was a distinction of value as it related to male and female children. But then when you broaden that out and you get outside of the home and you you might say, well, I think my kids are blessings, but I don't have to view your kids that way. And so there was a tendency to view, yes, my kids are blessings from the Lord, but uh, your kids are insignificant to me. Your kids are not that valuable to me. And so there was a tendency to view kids as disruptions, which is what's driving the disciples to rebuke the moms and the dads that are bringing their kids to Jesus to try to turn them away and because they're conditioned by this environment they're conditioned by this culture yet Jesus doing all that he always does which is to contradict everything Jesus operating in his own economy Jesus occupying operating in light of the kingdom of his father. He smiles, he laughs, he welcomes, he blesses the kids that are coming to him. He's revealing in this moment something about the heart of God, something about the heart of God that the disciples are trying to shield, that the disciples' actions are trying to eclipse, something about the love of God and the nature of his grace that should be reflected in the lives of his disciples. So when it comes to the role you and I are to play in the world that we live in, we are to play the type of role that reflects the heart of our Father and that imitates the love of our Savior so that we echo we echo Jesus' actions in this moment. We echo it in our parenting. We echo it in our community here at the Hallows Church. We echo it in how we view people outside of our church. We want to represent the heart of God well. But to do that, you and I have to step back and ask ourselves some questions because we have to ask ourselves some hard questions because We ultimately have to discover where is it that we're taking our cues when we view kids. Do we take our cues from our culture or do we take our cues from our Christ? There are aspects of our culture that if we take our cues from the culture, we're going to view kids as disruptions. And when that seeps into our parenting, and when that seeps into how we relate to kids, all of a sudden we will become overbearing in our parenting. We will become overbearing in our parenting if we view kids as disruptions. One of the things that I think challenges me the most is I'm now a father of three. I have a five-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son and a nine-month-old little baby girl. I, just to be honest with you, this, where my heart goes, where I'm tempted to go in my parenting is, is in this direction. I am tempted at times to view my kids as disruptions because they interrupt my quiet time. They raise the noise level in the home. They make messes at the dinner table. And these disruptions to my comfort frustrate me so that I begin to view them as disruptions and I become overbearing in my parenting and I don't exercise patience as I ought. I don't exercise love as I ought. I don't discipline in ways that are honoring to Jesus and that are good to them. Instead, what happens when I become overbearing in my parenting, and I would say this is true of you, if you become overbearing in your parenting, what will happen is you will no longer discipline your kids, you will punish your kids. There's a big difference between punishing them and disciplining them. If you punish them, it's most likely for you. Overbearing, trying to take control of a situation, trying to take control of the household, but if you're disciplining your children, you're trying to love them and lead them and serve them in a way that exposes them to the blessing of Jesus. You are not hindering them from receiving the blessing of Jesus when you exercise discipline rather than punishment. And the difference between those two may be discerned in this way you might say that it is inappropriate for a person to discipline mistakes. What we discipline in our parenting, when we view our kids and when we love our kids, we don't discipline their mistakes. We don't discipline them for spilling milk at the table. We don't discipline them for making messes and doing things that are clearly accidents. What we do is we discipline defiance. We discipline disobedience. We discipline those times when they are not listening or trusting mom and dad, the the times in which they are not listening or trusting our counsel and our care for them. So if we begin to view kids as disruptions, we will become overbearing in our parenting. So we don't want to go in that direction. We don't want to echo our culture in that regard. We want to echo our Christ. But there's another way in which you and I might view kids. There's another view that's P- more probably prominent in our society today, and that is if on one hand there's a temptation to view kids as disruptions and so we become overbearing with them. On the other hand, there's a temptation we feel to view kids as, as demigods. And what that means is instead of viewing them as disruptions that we try to control and we t- try to manipulate and manage, we view them as demigods. We carve out of them little images that look a lot like us. And all of a sudden, we begin to draw our value from them. All of a sudden, we begin to live vicariously through them. You see this happen with the overly zealous sports dad who's at every game, but he's at every game because he's trying to live through his kid rather than simply let his kid live. And so he becomes vicarious, obsessed over his kid's Accomplishments on the sports field so much so that the sports calendar begins to dominate the family calendar. The sports calendar begins to dominate their participation and their the rhythms of their faith family and their involvement in a worshipping missional community called a church. They easily sacrifice that. sports, they easily sacrifice that for other things that are intruding upon the calendar because all of a sudden these kids are turned into little demigods, little idols through whom the moms and dads are tempted to draw their value. Moms and dads are tempted to live vicariously. You see it not only in the dad who's overly zealous with the sports career of his kids, you you see it in the pageant parents as well, those who want to bring a sense of beauty and style to their kids to the point where they neglect the development of character and they begin to push and prod for certain things. And all of a sudden, as they begin to view kids as demigods, they become obsessed. And when they become obsessed with their kids, the kids begin to occupy the functional center of the home. And when we do that, when we move in that direction and we begin to view our kids this way, moms and dads, let this be a warning to us. When we do that, the only thing we're going to succeed in our parenting at doing is the only thing we'll succeed at doing is perpetuating idolatry. If we obsess over our kids and they take their cues as far as the affection and the attention we give them based on their various things that they do, rather than just simply having... an Uh, A humble sense of pride for our kids, but when we begin to obsess over it and draw value upon it and place the pressure of an idol upon our kids, we're just going to perpetuate their idolatry. And when they grow up, we're going to be wondering, why is it that they don't center their life on Christ? Why is it that they don't take their participation in the rhythms of a faith family and their involvement in the mission of God seriously? Why is it that they allow so many things to crowd that out and to push it to the periphery of their lives it's prob- it could most likely be attributed to the fact that we modeled that for them because we obsessed over them and we taught them to obsess over what they were doing as well to the point where they're able to too easily willing to push everything to the fringes of their lives. I'm reminded of a commercial that came out several years ago. I'm probably dating myself a little bit here. That's okay. It was one of those public service announcements and I remember it, I remember it because it was kind of an awkward commercial, but there was this teenager who was smoking a cigarette and hiding in the dark, and he's outside smoking a cigarette, and then dad walks in and catches him, and dad's just appalled that this kid is smoking a cigarette, and he looks at him and says, like, where did you learn that from? What, what are you doing? And then the kid, the kid kind of drops a cigarette, and then he gets all emotional and says, I learned it from you, okay? I learned it from you. And then he went wandering off and running away. And, but it's that idea that we just perpetuate things by how we obsess over certain things. And we want to be very careful not to perpetuate idolatry in the lives of our little ones because we treat them as demigods. We turn them into idols. We seek to draw life from them and we apply way too much pressure upon them, and not only is that harmful for the kid, it is going to be harmful for you because you're going to discover one day that your kids make terrible gods. Your kids make terrible gods. So we don't want to view kids this way. We don't want to see kids as either disruptions. We don't want to move to the other extreme and view them as demigods so we begin to center life around them. We want to view kids in our families and in our church the way Jesus views them. And the way Jesus views them in this passage doesn't fit either one of those categories where Jesus lays and where he leads us to be as his followers is to view our kids as disciples, as little learners, and to treat them as such, to expose them to the blessing of God. So we want to view kids as disciples. This is what Jesus is doing in this text. Look at how he's responding Moms and dads are bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And, and then it says at the end that he took these kids in his arms. Now, this might be awkward because the kids, the word for children here, could range anywhere from infancy to about 12 years old. So you know, maybe Jesus was a big dude. He could pick up a 12-year-old, whatever the case may be. But these kids that were coming to him, he was taking in his arms. and He was blessing them. He was affirming God's love for them. He was blessing and affirming these kids, saying, God wants you, God loves you, God's grace is for you. Chances are high that he echoed a blessing that was quite commonly spoken by Jewish rabbis in the first century, a blessing that is found in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. Perhaps when these kids would come to Jesus and he would take them in his arms and he would bless them, maybe he uttered these words over them. Maybe he looked at these little disciples and he said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Affirming God's favor in their lives. He's treating them as little disciples, welcoming them in and blessing them. Now, this is quite different from treating a kid like a disruption or treating a kid like a demigod. This is the type of treatment that says, you know, if I treat you like a disruption, I'm gonna misrepresent the heart of God to you. If I treat you like a demigod, I'm gonna misrepresent the heart of God to you. If I treat you like a disruption, all of a sudden you're going to think that you are an annoyance. And then you're going to take that perspective and project it upon God and believe the lie that you are annoying to God or that God doesn't want you or that you're always in the way or that you're always interfering or that you're always interrupting. You're going to give the impression to your kids if you treat them as disruptions that God doesn't want them and that God isn't delighted to receive them. And so we don't want to go in that direction. But at the same time, if we treat them as demigods, we're going to put so much pressure upon them to be perfect that they're simply going to become little Pharisees. Religious or irreligious, they're going to become Pharisees and they're going to put all their faith in their accomplishments and in their achieved righteousness in this world. Whether that righteousness takes the form of, moral, of morality and just being good kids, Or that righteousness takes the form of some other type of accomplishment and praise that they may receive from the people around them. And then they start putting their faith in that, and we do them a disservice. But what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's treating them as disciples. He's saying, look, God's blessing, God's favor, God's grace, God's peace, it is coming to you as a child because you now represent the types of Status that God blesses and endows with grace in His kingdom. That this blessing that I'm giving to you has nothing to do with what you do, it has nothing to do with what you achieve, it has nothing to do with all the times you've disrupted mom and dad's dinner time or quiet time or whatever the case may be. I'm just giving you this blessing because I am good. I love you. He's treating them as disciples, He's setting them up on that trajectory loving them, blessing them, bestowing grace upon them. But there's another dynamic in this, that not only is he taking them in his arms and blessing them, it also says that he, he actually lays his hands on him on them. Now, when Jesus lays his hands on these kids, treating them as disciples, you got to catch what he's doing because he's not only wanting to say, look, you were loved by God, you were blessed by God, God is going to be gracious to you. He's saying you're now going to be used by God. The laying on of hands represented a formal type of commissioning, saying you are now this grace that you've been given, this blessing that, you've been, that has been bestowed upon you, you are now to turn and to be that type of blessing to others. Let's don't underestimate the type of impact our little disciples can have in the kingdom of God. Our little disciples can be used mightily in the advancement of the kingdom of God and the bestowing of blessing upon this world. My daughter Delaney taught me this last week. She's five years old and she's now started kindergarten. She goes downtown and so every morning, most mornings I drive her into school and we take the same route every time. And every time we do so, she sees a guy standing on the corner and he's, he looks hurting. He's a homeless gentleman who's who's out there every day in the rain or shine, whether it's cold, and regardless of temperature, he's out there hoping that someone would show him charity, hoping that somebody would bless him in some discernible way. And and I remember Delaney saying, Dad, we we should take one of those care packages that we put together at church, and we, we should give it to him. And me, being a dad, I... I wanted to nurture her heart of compassion. I didn't take that time to go into the complexities of poverty and homelessness. and, and all. What I, I affirmed her compassion, her unilateral, her desire to show unilateral grace, to bestow blessing and help upon this gentleman, this image bearer that she sees every day going to school. And so we formed a package. I said, Delaney, this is a great idea. I want you, let's put a package together. And then next time we go and we're stopped at that red light, I want you to hand it to him. And so we pulled up to the red light and rolled down the window, and she reached her little five-year-old hand out there. And, and when she did, and he took it, I said, Delaney, I want you to tell him, God bless you, Jesus loves you. God bless you, Jesus loves you. And what does she do? She hands him this care package that has all types of things that could serve him well for a, for a moment, but, but then extending a blessing. God bless you, Jesus loves you. God bless you, Jesus loves you. That's nurturing disciples, that's seeing potential in the lives of our little ones to make an impact for the kingdom of God. So let's don't underestimate them, let's treat our little ones as disciples the way Jesus is treating these kids as disciples in this passage. But understand that if we do so, if we we move in this direction and we begin to treat kids in our families and in our church as disciples, All of a sudden, that means you and I will become opportunistic in our parenting. We will become opportunistic in our community so that we take every opportunity we have to point people to Jesus and to extend blessing to others. We will take the opportunity to disciple the little ones and in the process, disciple one another by connecting each other to the blessing and the grace and the peace of Jesus. This is what begins to happen when we start viewing kids as disciples. We become opportunistic and we begin to think intentionally about how we can connect people not only to receiving the blessing of Jesus, but relaying the blessing of Jesus in their own discipleship. And in their own ministries. And so when you look at this passage. You kind of see this going down. With the way Jesus is receiving these kids. He's blessing them. He's commissioning them. But then you also see. There's some things that Jesus say in this passage. That if we're going to treat our little ones as disciples. There's some things that we need to instill within them. And in the process of instilling some certain lessons. Into the lives of our little ones. We have to shore them up in ourselves as well. So whether you are a little disciple or a big disciple, there are lessons that we have to learn. There's a perspective that we need to be swept up in if we're going to receive blessing and grace and relay blessing and grace. So you see these lessons. There are three of them that I want to point out from this story. One is this. In this passage, Jesus not only sees children as disciples, but when you look at verses 14 and 15, Jesus Encourages his disciples to become like children. So he sees children as disciples, but then he tells the disciples, Now look at kids, because there are some things you can learn from them. And when he does that, he's instilling some lessons that must be ingrained within us as followers of Jesus. The first lesson is this that every person on the planet is inherently valuable. Every person on the planet is inherently valuable. This is what Jesus is saying when he's receiving kids in that moment. Because kids represented the types of people society overlooked, abandoned, discarded, pushed to the fringes. The types of people in society that weren't esteemed highly. And yet Jesus here is bringing them closer than even his disciples are in this moment. Because he's saying, look, every person is inherently valuable, inherently valuable, including kids. So when it comes to the role we play in this city and the role that we play in discipling our little ones, we want to instill this perspective. We want to affirm the inherent dignity and value of every person in this city and around the world. So as disciples of Jesus, this is how we see humanity. Value is not determined by a person's age. Whether they are young or old, whether they are at the peak of their performance in life, value is not determined by age. There is an inherent value not tied to anything external or anything that is uh, a part of our personhood, like age. But not only would you say that value is not determined by age, we would go one step further. I think that kids in this passage represent this. Because the word for children here refers to both boys and girls. He was receiving all the kids. Because Jesus is teaching us that value is not determined by a person's sex or gender. Value is not determined by a person's sex or gender. So let me encourage you, or let me challenge you, moms and dads, or those who are relating to little ones on a regular basis. How is it that you, how do you talk about members of the opposite sex? Do you talk in an affirming way? Or do you talk in negative terms? If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are not free to talk about members of the opposite sex in any way that you choose. If you were a disciple of Jesus, you recognize that value is not determined by sex or gender, that men and women are equally valuable in the eyes of God. And so as disciples, we affirm that. We say value is not determined by sex or age, regardless of what our culture tells us. We don't take our cues from our culture. But then you go one step further. Value is not determined by a person's race. Value is not determined by the color of a person's skin. It is not determined by race. And I think this is where churches are tempted to lose their saltiness today. Churches are tempted to lose what we talked about last week, their piquancy today, is when dealing with matters of race relations and the sensitivity of this issue in our society. So some churches are getting really excited about the cause of justice and they're wanting to champion justice and they're clamoring for justice in the world specifically as it relates to race relations. But this past weekend, I was hanging with an African-American pastor who's planted a church in urban Atlanta named Dottie Lewis. He's doing a phenomenal work in one of the hardest neighborhoods in all of Atlanta, seeing people meet Jesus. And, And he looked at me and he said, you know, Churches should not clamor for justice. He said, churches should clamor for reconciliation. He said, if you get justice without reconciliation, all you wind up with is hell. Justice without reconciliation results in hell. Justice without reconciliation, without forgiveness, without repentance, without restoring relationships, justice without that always results in manifestations of hell on earth. This is what eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth mentality, that's what the vengeance culture comes from. It is a justice culture without reconciliation. But if we're disciples of Jesus, we do not step into those conversations. We do not step into a tumultuous climate in our world today and clamor for justice because we know that justice in and of itself is inadequate. Justice in and of itself doesn't bring healing. Reconciliation does. Yes, we want justice. We want justice with reconciliation. We want forgiveness and hope and restored relationships. So Dottie Lewis would caution us in our desires for justice as we consider the race relations in our society. He would say, look, don't go after justice. Go after, go after reconciliation. Recognize that the person who doesn't look like you or the person across from you in this unjust interactions or what you desire, what, you, what is deemed to be unjust actions or whatever the case may be, understand that that person's value is not determined by their race. Their value is determined by the fact they were created in the image of God. We need to treat and relate to the other as such. But then we would go one step further. Value is not, only determ- is not determined by age. It's not determined by sex or gender. Value is not determined by race. But value is not determined by usefulness. A person's value is not determined by how useful they are. When my sister Callie was giving getting ready to give birth to her second child and she learned that she was this second child was going to be have down syndrome. She was advised by her doctors to abort to end it. By God's grace, my sister resisted. By God's grace, my sister recognized that a person's value is not tied to their usefulness. A person's value is not tied necessarily to their convenience or the contributions they can tangibly make to society, but that a person's value is tied to the fact that God created them and that life has more to do with relationships of love than it does with productivity in life. So she gave birth to her daughter and she's raising her daughter. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's inconvenient. Yes, are times when when her development, because it is slower, her development can be frustrating. It can be perceived as some type of disruption. But my sister, again, is not operating According to the ethos of her culture, she's operating according to the ethos of the kingdom of God that says life is valuable and life's value is not tied to a person's usefulness or to a person's ability to function, quote-unquote, normally. And so she's loving her daughter, she's raising her daughter, and she's displaying to the world that life is more than productivity and usefulness. Life is about loving relationships, and God gifted my sister this child so that she would learn to love like Jesus loves. And in the process of loving this child, my sister is discovering how much God through this child is loving her, being reminded of the gospel, but the gospel says, look, God loved you even though you ultimately aren't very useful to him. Your value in God's eyes isn't tied to your usefulness. That's religion. That's law. Your value in God's eyes is tied to grace and his declaration, which he speaks over us irrespective of our contributions and irrespective of our usefulness in his kingdom. He loves us because he loves us. That's grace. So this is an important lesson for us to have seized us. It is ones that we must relay to our little ones so that they grow up being more conditioned by this economy than by a culture that may say otherwise. We want them to know that every person is inherently valuable. Jesus is modeling that in this passage when he receives all of these kids. But not only is he receiving these kids, notice what he says in verse 15, which gets us to the second lesson. Notice what he says in verse 15. This is a moment where Jesus uses, it's an important phrase. He says, truly, which was a way for him to accent what he's saying, saying, really pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, Perhaps you've heard that verse before. Perhaps you've heard it taught before. When Jesus says that you must become like a child to receive the kingdom of God and enter into it, he's not saying arbitrarily and subjectively decide upon uh, the cute traits about kids that you like and then imitate those. He's not pointing us to model the virtues of a child. He's not saying, well, you should be simple like a kid. He's not saying, well, you should be pure like a kid. He's not saying you should be innocent like a kid. Anyone with a two year old knows that kids aren't innocent. Just doesn't work that way. When he says, become like a child to receive the kingdom of God, he's not saying model the virtues of a child. He's saying embrace the status of a child as it was defined in the first century. A child in the first century had no rights. A child in the first century had no resources. He's saying, assume the posture and the status of a child if you're going to receive the kingdom of God. Because on one hand, yes, every person is inherently valuable. But on the other hand, we know in the Gospels that every person is utterly and ultimately helpless. He's saying, recognize that you are a helpless person apart from grace. This is what he's getting after when he says to become like a child. This is a call to humility. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's given a picture of what he taught earlier in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. There's a moment in this sermon where he talks about what it means to be blessed and the types of people who receive grace. And the very first one in his list of beatitudes or blessings was this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of God. A child is a living picture of what it means for a person to be poor in spirit. He's saying, recognize that you do not have resources within you to commend yourself to God. He's saying recognize that you have no rights per se to appeal to in your relationship with God. He's saying assume the status of a child, which means you don't ultimately have rights and it means you don't have any resources. And what that does is it frees you up to become the type of person who magnifies the grace of God who recognizes that Jesus' reception of you, Jesus' blessing upon you, Jesus' desire to use you in his purposes in this world have nothing to do with what you do and how well you do it. It has everything to do with his grace towards you. To become like a child means to become a candidate for saving and redeeming Grace. This otherworldly concept that says God treats us better than we deserve so that we recognize this. And in becoming like a child, then we affirm that no one can ascend into the kingdom of God. That no one can climb into the kingdom of God. No one can ascend into the kingdom of God. Instead, everyone must descend into the kingdom of God. He's calling for humility. He's calling for a surrendering of your perceived rights or your perceived sense of entitlement. Well, I should be treated like this because I did that. He's saying let go of all of that. You've got to descend into the kingdom of God. You must humble yourself to be blessed in the kingdom. You must become like a child. This is why one of the most famous and popular verses in the early church was found, was quoted by both Peter in his letter and James in his. And it's a quotation from the Old Testament that says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You can't ascend into the kingdom of God. You must descend into the kingdom of God. You must become like a child, recognizing that you have no rights to draw upon in your relationship with God. You've got to recognize that you have no resources to draw upon in your relationship with God. And when you do, now, I don't know how that lands on you, but in my mind, this is the most liberating reality in the universe To know the grace of God, to receive God's goodness towards me, even though I don't deserve it, even though I, in many ways, should disqualify myself from it. To know that he's been gracious towards me in the gospel. That liberates me to live and to love. Receiving that blessing actually enables me to become a blessing to others. Being treated with grace helps me treat other people with grace. This type of humility actually liberates me and liberates us to love people well. All of a sudden, we're not trying to quantify other people on the basis of their age or on the basis of their sex or gender or on the basis of their race, or on the basis of their usefulness, all of a sudden we're stepping into the reality that God declares people valuable, and he assures us of that by sending his son Jesus to live a life of perfect obedience. To die on the cross as a sacrifice of atonement so that our sins may be forgiven, so that grace may be bestowed, so that reconciliation can become a reality. And then Jesus not only died on the cross, he rose from the grave to conquer everything that makes life miserable in the here and now. To give us hope, to give us peace, to let the blessing of God to be actualized in our lives. And then we become a blessing to those around us as we live hopeful lives, knowing that a better day is coming knowing that an existence is coming where men and women love each other well. Men and women are not sizing each other up on the basis of externalities or on the basis of some other type of feature, but are loving each other according to the grace and the economy and the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is getting after when he says, when he says you gotta become like a child to receive the kingdom. And if you receive the kingdom now, you are guaranteed to enter the kingdom in the future. So this is the lesson as decided. These are the basic lessons you and I need to be seized with. Every person is inherently valuable. Every person is ultimately helpless. And every person then desperately needs Jesus. So how do we disciple one another? How do we disciple the little ones in our families, the little ones in our church, the little ones in our city? We disciple them by pointing them to Jesus, leading them to Jesus, not getting in the way, but opening up the path for them to connect with Jesus, to be blessed by Jesus, to know these to be true, so that when a person steps into a relationship with Jesus, they do so knowing that Jesus wants them. Doing so knowing that Jesus isn't annoyed by them. Doing so knowing that Jesus is delighted to bestow blessing and is delighted to sweep them up into his kingdom and then release them into the world to be a blessing to the world in which we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you this this evening and I pray that you're the grace that is available to us Through the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus and all that he did, I pray that such grace would be realized by every heart and every person in this room. I pray that your your grace would be magnified in our worship of you. I pray that your grace would be magnified in our service to you. I pray that the blessing you have bestowed upon so many of us in this space who identify as followers and disciples of your son, I pray that that blessing would be extended, that it would be relayed. I pray that if someone in this space tonight is yet to receive this blessing, who've yet to recognize your grace towards them in Jesus, I pray that you would awaken their hearts to to that reality and that they would receive your kingdom, that they would receive your redemption, your reign, your rule, and that they would enjoy your blessing and live their lives serving you in the here and now, blessing everyone else they come in contact with. God, we love you and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.